Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Do you compare your insides to other people's outsides? Do you think successful people have a magic wand bestowed upon them, and that is why they're successful entrepreneurs? Do you think it is not possible for you to be successful? Do you wonder? what it is really like to be a successful entrepreneur. Today, I'm talking with Alexandra Franzen. She's a writer, a wordsmith, and an author. I have links to her uber cool website and her new book, 50 Ways to Say You're Awesome, on my show notes at How She Really Does It. Alexandra is going to share with you how she really does it and how she built her business to align with who she is and her dreams. Alexandra, hello and welcome to my show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was a fabulous introduction. (laughs) I'm enthralled (laughs) by what's about to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming from a wordsmith, that's a good thing. So uh, first off, for my listeners who aren't familiar with you, what is a wordsmith? (laughs) Good question. So I call myself a wordsmith. I also sometimes just call myself a writer, a copywriter, a communication specialist. Basically, what I do is I work with fellow entrepreneurs and often writers, artists, performers, creative types, and I help them to channel their stories into business and marketing language that they can use. So it's sort of a form of storytelling, but with a very practical, persuasive end game in mind. And my big philosophy is that, you know, whether you're writing for your business or something more personal, every single word you write is an opportunity to leave the person reading in better condition than you found them. So really, as a wordsmith and as a writing teacher, I'm all about positive sum communication where both you and the person reading, whether it's your customer, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mom, are elevated by the experience of reading your words. Oh, I love that. Every word that you write can lead them to better than where they started. Yes, absolutely. It's very Mr. Rogersy, really. He's kind of my icon. <laughs> he is your fan. Or you are his fan, aren't you? I am. A little obsessed. So so you, you have this business. And what can you talk about Because in your in your blog on your website, you talk about like how many hours that you actually put in writing, and it's like thirty five hours is one of your blog posts that I read, and um, so a lot of times people they think, oh, if I get if I'm my own entrepreneur, I can set up my schedule and I can have all this free time, and they forget about the structure of the work piece. So can you talk about that and share your experience with my listeners? Absolutely. So. Yes. I mean, to some extent, when you're an entrepreneur, you do have a lot more freedom, but it's a lot of work. Uh, The good news is, hopefully, the work is work that you really love, so it flies by. It doesn't feel like, you know, waiting in line at the DMV. But (laughs) my week looks a little something like this. And, you know, it's different every week, but this is kind of the general flow. On, On Mondays, I'm usually doing kind of mindless, low-key administrative stuff, you know, 
answering emails, updating my website, sending out invoices. I do have an assistant for a couple hours a month, but I still do a lot of the heavy lifting and legwork myself. So Mondays are kind of just like getting the house in order days, and I can easily fill seven, six, you know, ten hours just on that kind of stuff. No problem. It's incredible how many emails <laughs> yes. you can start to get. So Monday is kind of like, you know, housekeeping day. Um, and, you know, through that, I try to turn everything into a game. <laughs> so I'm constantly looking for ways to like, how can I write this email like a haiku? Or how can I channel my inner Mr. Rogers while I'm doing this really tedious website update? <laughs> <laughs> There's always ways to make the time fly. And then Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, on an average week, um, I'm usually working one-on-one with one of my clients. And sometimes that's a brand new client that I'm doing a one-day session with. Other times it's an ongoing client. I have a couple of people that I work with every month. But either way, those days are full and long. I'm usually preparing for the session by about 9 or 10 a.m. We usually start at 11 Um, I wrap with them around five or six in the evening, and then I'm usually doing more writing for them really until bedtime. So it's a full 10, even 12 hour day of like serious brain power. Um, And those sessions are priced at $1,500 a day, which a lot of people would go, oh my God, you know, how dare you? That's an insane amount of money to (laughs) command. But really when you break it down, I'm kind of just charging like what any consultant would charge on an hourly basis. I just happen to be working in a very kind of intensified 10, 12 hour block. So Fridays, I'm usually toast and I need to chill. (laughs) (laughs) So Fridays are all about playing. And often uh, I have a couple of girlfriends and we have a recurring joke that we call Fancy Lady Fridays. Uh, which is where we get together at a coffee shop uh, ostensibly to like just hang out and chill and have lunch. But of course, it usually turns into like this wild brainstorming session. And then we all whip out our laptops and start like writing new blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> so Fridays are are still a work day, but more playful, more creative. I'm usually working on my own blog or writing guest posts for some of the other sites I write for like Huffington Post, Daily Love, Daily Muse, et cetera, et cetera. And then Saturdays and Sundays, are kind of variable. Some weekends I just truly unplug, relax, have brunch, go to yoga, you know, do not do anything sort of quote unquote work related. Other weekends I'm, I might be teaching a live workshop in uh, somewhere with a group of anywhere from 20 to 25 people. And then other weekends I'm, I'm sort of half and half, you know, maybe I'll, I'll take half the day to just play and chill. And then the other half I'm catching up on more emails or writing more blog posts or, or catching up with some clients who have lingering questions from their sessions. So the reality is I'm working pretty much every day of the week and it's a lot of work. But, (laughs) and this is something I've talked about openly and written about in the past, I'm not really that busy. Like I don't feel really, it's rare that I feel truly like I'm in a pressure cooker. And that's because I say no to a lot of opportunities and a lot of things. And I try to keep my calendar really lean. And I really only focus on like one thing every day. I never have like an ongoing to-do list of of 10 or 11 or 12 things that make my brain go crisscross and sad. Um, I'm a very uni-focused kind of gal. And with that one thing, what can you give an example of what that one thing would be like? Yeah, for sure. So for example, if I'm doing a client session, 
um, and it's a one-day session, they are literally my sole and only focus for that day. And because I'm uni-focused like that and they're focused like that, we're able to cover a ton of ground in a way that we might not be able to if we were spreading that work out over the course of, you know, a week, a month, two months, etc. Um, if I'm doing a day of sort of administrative bloggy stuff, I will sit down and I will just plow through like 20, 30, 40 emails until they are done. And I will not click around. I don't, you know, hop over. Oh, let's just watch this YouTube video. From, <laughs> you know, like no, no climbing cats on pianos. Or whatever. <laughs> um, so I'm a, I, I like to work that way. And I'm not saying that that is, you know, a universal technique. There are some people who are really passionate about sort of hopping and, and bouncing and being very multi-passionate with the way that they work. But I find that really choosing one focus and just knocking it down like a prize fighter is how I like to roll. <laughs> And and that sounds like that's your strength. It doesn't have to be other people's, but you like to work in big blocks of time and energy and have your focus be intense like that. And that's Absolutely. when you work at your best. Absolutely. And I've noticed that for me as a writer and just as a human being, I hate loose ends. I hate unfinished business. I would rather like work till two in the morning to get something completely and utterly and perfectly done done so that I can like archive it out of my brain and just have it off my shoulders, then leave it like semi done and then have this like splooge thing uh, hanging over me <laughs> for the next couple of days. So that's, a, that's a, a personality quirk that can sometimes get me into trouble and, and lead to some overworking. But for the most part, if I make sure to keep my calendar really lean and focused, it's a great thing. Have you always been like this? Yes, okay. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. I, uh, I've always been a, a hate sloppiness, hate messes, hate unfinished business kind of gal. Even when I was a very, very little kid, uh, my mom likes to joke that I was constantly like purging my bedroom to create, <laughs> to create this like Zen monastery existence when I was like 11 years old. <laughs> And she was like, where did all your furniture go? What's happening? But uh, that's just always been how I've rolled for whatever reason. And it sounds like there's a lot of discipline or structure in your life. Would you, mm -hmm. would you say that's true? I would say that's true. And I, I think that it's gotten even stronger over time. Um, I was very, very influenced actually a couple of years ago by a woman who, who many people in the entrepreneurial world know quite well, uh, Marie Forleo. Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to go to one of Marie's events in New York. And she said, it was one of those things where, you know, there's a, a bajillion speakers, there was all this stuff happening, and, and I took lots of notes, but I didn't really remember anything about the event <laughs> except, <laughs> for this, except for this one thing that Marie just said almost offhandedly during her talk, which was, if you were the best in the world at what you do, how would you behave? And it was that word behave that really stuck with me, not... How would you feel? Not what would your website look like? Not, you know, like how would you talk about yourself? But how would you behave? What are the behaviors you would do every day, every week, every month if you were the best in the world at what you do? And I went home from that event and that was like ringing in my ears. And that was at the very early stages of my business where I was kind of, you know, still throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what would stick and figuring out where I fit. And it really shifted something in me. And I started to think, you know, I might not be and I may never be the greatest writer in the world. But if I was, 
how would I behave? Like, what would my day look like? What would my sense of discipline look like? How many hours would I put in or not put in? Who would I connect with? How, what would I do first thing in the morning? How would I treat my email? It really changed the way that I approach pretty much everything. And it took discipline kind of to a different level. It became more like devotion. Ooh, I like that. Yes. <laughs> discipline plus love equals devotion. Ooh, because I really have a hard time with that word discipline. Yeah, it sounds very militant. And yes. that's not really who I am or you are or most people are. <laughs> no, I really like devotion. Ooh, discipline plus love equals devotion. That's awesome. Yeah, because I was going to ask you for a new word. <laughs> you being a yeah, wordsmith. <laughs> so let's go and start. Let's go to when you decided because you had a nine to five job and you chose to leave. And what kind of courage did it take for you to let go of that, that certainty, that steadiness, and to go into this kind of uncertain world of entrepreneurship? Mm, really interesting question. So when I decided that I was going to leave my, you know, relatively secure nine to five job, which was in public broadcasting, and go off on my own and start my own business. It's very interesting because that in that time, it was towards the end of 2009 that I started to put everything in motion. It was like the heart of the recession. And at the company I worked at, which was a, you know, a very large, reputable company, people were getting laid off left and right. And it, there was a sense of panic in the air. Nobody knew what was going to happen, if their show was going to be canceled, you know, if they'd be needed, if they'd be transferred, like what was going on. So, you know, people laugh or, or rather people would say to me like, oh my God, you know, so brave, so risky, like to become an entrepreneur, so much uncertainty. And I was thinking, keeping a nine to five job feels really risky right now, like to have that one revenue stream cut off at a moment's notice because of something that has nothing to do with you or your performance, like that sounds risky to me. Going off and being a freelancer or an entrepreneur and creating multiple revenue streams, that sounds safe. So I chose to, you know, step away from my job during a time when my whole concept of what's safe and what's risky was really being challenged as it was for many of my coworkers and peers. So that's not to say that I was like, I had no fear. But um, I think that there's been a real shift, particularly in the past couple of years since the economy took a crazy nosedive, where having one job isn't actually that safe anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe never has been, but we've sort of been slapped in the face about that. So the way that I made the transition from my nine to five job into being an entrepreneur, the way that I made it feel safe for me was by doing some very practical things. I saved as much money as I could to give myself a bit of a cushion. I got a roommate because I had just bought a house <laughs> and, I, mm -hmm. and I needed to make sure I could cover my mortgage if everything fell apart. Uh, I started to ramp up my freelance projects even while I was still working my nine to five job so that there was sort of a, an interstitial period where I was doing both. Um, I invested, you know, about two, three thousand dollars in really, really revamping my website so that things looked professional and polished. And I felt proud to tell the world about who I was. So I did a lot of very practical building block pieces to set things in motion so that by the time I actually quit, I kind of felt like things were already were already moving in the direction I wanted. I wasn't starting from scratch. Oh, okay. That's really, I love how there was some practical stuff. It wasn't, oh, I just took a leap and everything just fell into place for me, right? No. You, had, you had a plan. 
Absolutely. And I credit that, a great deal of that planning to the very, very first coach that I ever hired, who's a woman named Michelle Ward, mm -hmm. uh, the When I Grow Up coach, who I am truly forever indebted to because she was the one who showed me, mm, how do I put this? I thought, okay, I'm going to quit my job and be a freelancer. And she sort of subtly opened my eyes to the fact that you can be a freelancer or you can be an entrepreneur and you can really set the rules of the game and show people how they get to work with you rather than sort of the freelancer mode of operation, which is more, you know, uh, I'll take anything that comes my way, got to pay my bills, more of, a, of what I perceive as like a scarcity mindset, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. So how do you have that mindset of getting people to work, how they get to work with you when you're first building out your clients mm. and there's a lot of space on that roster? Yeah, for sure. So I really for the first year after I quit my job, I'll be totally honest, like I was still figuring out what the frick I was doing <laughs> and, and still am to this day. But there was a lot of trial and error and still is. And there was a lot of, oh, that sounds like a cool project. I think I can do that. Uh, yeah, let's try it. Um, I'm going to give you a lowball quote because I'm not really sure if it's going to work. There's <laughs> all of that stuff that, that newbies do to kind of figure out what they actually are amazing at and what's going to work. But at a certain point, I think it's important to start refining. So for me, I realized after somewhere between six to nine months of, of kind of scattershot freelancing that working with people over the course of multiple weeks and months didn't feel good. Again, it was that unfinished business thing. Projects tended to drag on and on and on. I wouldn't get paid for weeks or months. Like it was just very kind of laborious. The process felt gross. And I had this suspicion that if I could just like wrangle one of my clients, sit them down with me for a day and just focus on their stuff, we could get everything done so much faster and both be so much happier. And once I had that revelation, I decided to design an offering that basically was that. And that was the first time that I really took a stand on my website in public and said, this is how I work best. This is how you can work with me. It's not a three-week process. It's a one-day immersion. Let's do this. And it was so interesting because my fear, of course, was, oh, my God, you know, people are going to think I'm insane. People are going to think I'm too pushy that, you know, where's the flexibility? But the opposite happened. My clients were thrilled that I was laying out the ground rules for them so that they didn't have to think about anything. They just said, yep, want it, signing up, done. And they knew exactly what they were getting. So I think that to sum it up, when you're just starting out, yes, you should experiment. Yes, there should be trial and error. There's going to be a lot of, of, of loose gray terrain for a while. But at a certain point, it's so valuable to see what your creative rhythm is, how you work best, and then tell people how they get to work with you. Because then you're not just offering a service, you're offering an experience that you've designed that people get to sign up for. Ooh, I like that. And so when those were those your first velocity sessions that you currently do? Yes, exactly. They were indeed. And you now charge $1500 a day. What did you start out with? Do you mind sharing? No, not at all. I love talking about money. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay, indeed. So, yes, these velocity sessions, as they came to be called, um, are these one-day writing sessions that I've been doing now for, for quite a while. Um, I've done them with multiple hundreds of people. It's been pretty wild. 
Um, and it's really changed my life and business. So when I first started doing them, the very first thing I did was, because I'm a writer and I just, I get my thoughts, once I get thoughts on paper, they suddenly feel real. <laughs> I wrote a sales page, like I wrote an invitation before I had even done a single one of them. I just wrote it down. And I shared that with, I think, maybe 10 or 12 people who had kind of wanted to work with me for a while, but like the timing hadn't quite worked out. And I basically approached them each via email and said, I've got this new thing. I think it's going to be amazing. I don't really know if it's going to work, but I've got a hunch that it's going to rock. <laughs> so this is what I'm offering. And I think the price that I set was somewhere around like $750, maybe $775. So still a significant investment, but most of them said yes. They signed up, they did it, and they were sort of my, my first round of guinea pigs to kick the tires and make sure that this way of working with people would really work. So then I hung out at that price point for a little while, did more sessions, and it built slowly. You know, like the first month I think I had maybe like three or four people book these sessions. The next month it was like four or five, then it was like four or five again, then four or five again, and then it was like six or seven, and then it was seven or eight. And then it was like 12, and then it was a waiting list of, of a bajillion people. So it, it built over time. And with each progression, I raised my rates, I think, then to like 875 for the day, hung out there for a while. Then I raised my rates to $1,000 a day. And that was like a huge mental hurdle for me. And then I raised them to $1,500 a day, where I've been hanging out for a while. So it was a slow elevation up as my waiting list continued to grow and as I became increasingly confident in my ability to over deliver every single time. And why was $1,000 a huge mental hurdle for you? You know, it's just psychology, like just mm -hmm. for some reason, looking at that number and really saying, if you want to spend the day with me and my brain, it's $1,000. It was like, I just can't explain it. Like it wasn't even rational. It was just, it just felt so wild. Like I, I could hear like these voices in my head going like, girl, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I it was, for some reason, the voices have like a, Ru a RuPaul, like sassy attitude. Although RuPaul in reality would probably say, girl, you deserve it. Um, but so I, you know, I had all these voices and I really grappled with it. And I learned a great technique that I'll, I'll paraphrase really briefly from oh, another person that I worked with, another coach named Pace Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pace has this exercise where when you're setting a price for any offering, you know, whether it's an ebook, uh, a service package, an event, a book, uh, to imagine like a ladder with rungs going up higher and higher and higher. And at each rung of the ladder is a different price point. You know, maybe you start at 500. And then it's 550, and then it's 600, then it's 650, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you imagine yourself in your mind's eye climbing up the ladder very slowly and you check in physically with your body at each rung to see like what's going on. So I did that exercise where I was climbing from like 875 to 900 to 925 to 950, <laughs> climbing, climbing, climbing up towards 1,000. And when I got to the, the $1,000 rung on that imaginary ladder, I got just like an explosion of butterflies in my stomach. It wasn't a bad feeling. It was just a, 
I, whoa, <laughs> like it was like I was about to go on stage in front of a thousand people. It was that sort of like tingliness. And what that told me was, you know, this number is good. It's not like a freak out, shut down, oh my God, no way number. It's a, ooh, like this, this, this is really big. This is a big deal. And if I declare this, then that means that I'm raising the bar, not only for my clients, but, uh, but myself as well. So I've used that exercise ever since when I'm setting the price for just about anything. And it's so great to get to that number where you've got the butterflies, but not like the seizing cold panic. <laughs> <laughs> it's that space in between, isn't it? Yes. And that's where growth happens. And that's where like amazing leaps and bounds can take place. And, and so when you make that offering, how, and you have those butterflies, what do you say to yourself? Mm. I think, I mean, there's many things you can say to yourself, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, I like to say to myself, um, I want, I always want to choose a number for any offering that feels really good in my hut, which is what I call my gut and my heart. <laughs> So it has to feel physically good for me, but it also has to feel kind of like how you feel when you go on a first date with someone and they just make you a little bit nervous, but in a good way, right? Like, ooh, like, am I, am I like, wow, I need to like step up to, to really impress this person. So it's that feeling of nervousness, but in a good way where you're excited, you're about to go on stage. And if you feel that way, I really believe that you can't go wrong. Um, the worst case scenario is you change the rate. You know what I mean? Like you have the power. You are the entrepreneur. But it is, it's a big deal to stand behind a number, especially a big number, and really say, I'm worth this. I'm, I'm you know, what I'm offering is this valuable. So I, I want everyone to have that butterfly experience at least once in their life. Yeah, because that money stuff really can limit people. Haven't you seen that? Absolutely. Yeah. I see um, even beyond the money, even beyond the number, something that I notice with a lot of my clients and a lot of the students who come to my workshops is like, let's say, you know, you're a service provider, entrepreneur, let's say you're a coach, you're a consultant, you're a designer, you're an illustrator, whatever it is, you're offering some kind of service. I see people putting together offerings or packages where I mean, it, they're just, it's like the bullet points of what's included in the offer goes down to the end of time, like some sort of like Egyptian scroll. There's just so many bells and whistles crammed into this offering. And what that says to me is this person doesn't really believe in their heart of hearts that them, just them with their gifts and their brain and a little bit of structure is enough. Like they feel a need to just cram so many like pieces of frosting and icing onto the cake to sort of like prove to people that this is a valuable offering. No, like it's just, it's just you. So that's it's part of the money thing, but it's really more of a question of value. Am I valuable? Am I good enough? Can I do this? Am I helpful? Ooh, and is there ever a time, Alexandra, that you're concerned you may not be good enough? Oh my gosh, yes, all the time, <laughs> not all the time, <laughs> but yes, but yes, I think that, you know, it, 
if you're working, particularly if you're doing work that's like one-on-one -on -one or in a small group setting, or I mean, even in a, in a big, scalable, massive group setting, I think everyone has that feeling just before the session begins or just before the workshop begins or just before the keynote talk begins where you're like, good Lord, just let me be helpful. Like, let me help someone. Let me move someone. Let me leave them in better condition than I found them. And I have that feeling before every single session to this day. And I don't want to lose that feeling. I think if you don't have that, you might be a sociopath. Or <laughs> <laughs> but the key is not to let that get out of control and spiral into like, you know, wild self-doubt, but just to notice it and go, I really want to be helpful. I'm really showing up. I want to help this person. Ooh, I love that. Being of service and connecting people and helping them be better or helping them grow, right? That's what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And I think that's what every entrepreneur is trying to do. You know, I think we're all, we, we want to do our own thing. We want to run our own businesses. Yes, because of the lifestyle that it affords us, because of the creative sovereignty, because of all of the beautiful things. But I think ultimately we all just want to help people. We're kind of addicted to it. And that's why <laughs> we keep writing the how-to blog posts and we keep creating the eBooks and we keep tweeting the witticisms. Like we just want to be helpful and inspiring and entertaining and informative. <laughs> and so what have your, been some of your highs of being an entrepreneur? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this because I've had a couple recently <laughs> that were <laughs> particularly fun. So it's interesting because so much of my work is with other entrepreneurs, you know, whether I'm, I'm writing their copy during a client session, whether I'm teaching them during a workshop, a lot of my peeps are business owners. However, I've noticed, particularly over the past year or two, that I've started to attract more and more people, particularly people who read my blog and who read my writing on other websites who are not entrepreneurs, who are just people who want to leave the world in better condition than they found it. And I love that. I love that the audience is broadening a bit. And I got an email a couple of weeks ago, and, and I won't share too many details because it's a little bit of a, of a dark story, but I'll, I'll share the, the surface layer, which is I got an email from a mom in, uh, in Europe, and this mom had just adopted a foster daughter. And uh, this daughter had suffered like just unimaginable pain. Like that, the likes of which we just, we won't talk about it. Like just horrible, really agonizing stuff. And this daughter, for somehow, some way, had discovered my blog and had been really enjoying uh, particularly some of the writing that I do about self-expression, about introducing yourself to strangers, about striking up conversations, about everyday communication. And she printed out several of my blog posts and like literally had them up in her room and was and was you know using them every day to help her come out of her shell especially at her new school and the mom asked me if I'd be willing to write a personal note to her daughter just to encourage her and cheer her on and when I got that email I just started to weep like I just started crying and I'm getting like teary-eyed just even thinking about it because that's the power of running a business, having a blog, putting your ideas out there, you never know who you're going to reach with some random blog post that mm -hmm. you, you know, banged out at midnight on a random Tuesday night. You just don't know who's going to see those words and be moved and be affected and whose lives you can help. So that was like a major high. And I wound up connecting with this young woman. She's so, so lovely. 
Um, she's doing a lot of animal activism work, and I was able to make a donation to her favorite beagle charity. <laughs> and uh, and it was just this incredible, beautiful, like synchronicitous moment where I felt like I'm doing something right. Oh. <laughs> and, and it was such a thrill to be able to connect with her. And that's another thing I love about running my business primarily online is how easy it is to be accessible, you know, to be contacted. And that's something I never want to lose. Mm. Happy story. <laughs> it, it is amazing how the internet allows the power of connectivity, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and it goes both ways, you know, like sometimes there are super amazing mentors and heroes and icons that I want to reach out to. And you don't always, you know, get a hold of them directly, but it's possible. Like almost everyone is reachable through some channel or another. And I think that's just amazing. It is amazing. The connectivity. And so what are some lows that you've experienced? Mm, oh, the lows. <laughs> so, I mean, there were definitely some very low moments, particularly in the first year as I was just starting out, where, you know, it just kind of... Uh, all the things that you might imagine, you know, am I going to make enough money this month? Will, will I lose my house? Just sort of like financial and external pressures like that. Um, but really the lows that, that stick with me even more are those very rare occasions when a client just isn't happy for whatever reason. You know, those stick with me like nothing else. And again, because it goes, like many of us, it goes back to that desire to just be helpful. And when you don't feel like you are helpful for an entrepreneur, that is the worst. It's the pits. Um, those rare occasions when I get, you know, a piece of feedback on a product I created or an, or an ebook I wrote where someone's like, meh, didn't like it. Refund, please. <laughs> like that, that kind of, I mean, ouch. Ouch, right? And it's crazy because you can get like hundreds of positive, uplifting, amazing compliments mm -hmm. every month, every year. And it's always like that one client or that one email or that one customer who's like, meh. And you're like, I'm finished. <laughs> it's all over. <laughs> so I've, I've learned, I've become increasingly good at sort of taking those with a sense of perspective and with a grain of salt. But still, those it's, you know, the negative stuff always sticks with you in a way that positive stuff doesn't. I don't know why that is. There must be like a biochemical reason for it. You know, um, there was this talk that Bruce Springsteen, who was like one of my favorite musicians, did at South by Southwest down in Texas for the music, music South by Southwest. But he talked to the musicians and the speech, like his concerts was kind of slow at first. And, and then as he got going, and he's not a great speaker, he's a musician, but as he got going, he got better. And in the end, he as he was talking about his career and how his mindset was set. But in the end, he said, rumble, young musicians, rumble. Believe you're the baddest. I can't say the rest on the air. And <laughs> that you suck. So, you know, be believe that you're absolutely incredible and that you suck. And kind of what I've taken that to mean is that I think when you have those kind of countering thoughts right, in mindsets, I think that's what helps us kind of stay in alignment to who we are, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes you just have this like confidence, like, yes, I can do this. I'm amazing. But if we continue on that path, right, we can get out of touch and we can become arrogant. And then some days we go, oh my gosh, <laughs> I just suck, right? And then we can now question that. Is that really true? Well, what can I do better? 
and looking at how can I make it better? What can I do differently next time? And that allows more growth to occur. And so that's where I think that dichotomous brain that you're talking about comes from. I don't know. What do you think? Absolutely. I think that I, I've learned to look at those little blips of negativity, whether it's, you know, genuine feedback that I need to take in or just some random like I've, I've gotten a few pieces of just like weird hate mail. <laughs> for some reason. So whatever it is, um, I've I've learned how to say, OK, this is this is an opportunity to be humbled in a good way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, again, it's like the, the difference between discipline and devotion. There's a difference between feeling shitty about yourself or feeling like you, you know, suck in a bad way and just feeling humbled. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just a person. <laughs> I'm just a human being. I am trying my best. Um, and I am going to continue to do that. So I think that... It's, if possible, reframing negative feedback or weird feedback or icky feedback as just an opportunity to be humbled, to examine yourself, to see where you can be better, be stronger, you know, create even more of a positive dent in the universe. That's a very good thing. And I agree. It's, it's like we need, we need both. We need a lot of positive reinforcement and we need the odd humbling moment in the mix to keep us on planet Earth. Absolutely. And so let's talk about leaps. What leaps have you taken? Mm, leaps, leaps, leaps. I would say I just made a theme song for your for your <laughs> leap segment. <laughs> leaps, leaps, leaps. Make a leap. Um, every you know every single time that I've embarked on a first, all the first times always feel like big leaps. Like the very very first time that I pitched myself for a freelance project at a marketing agency. The very, very first time that I pitched myself to do a guest post for a high-profile website. The very, very first time that I charged money for one of my writing workshops. Like all of the firsts, even to this day, because there's always more firsts, right? Mm -hmm. All of the firsts always feel like a big leap. And then it's crazy because as soon as they're done, it's like, it ain't no thing. Yep. <laughs> but somehow, every single time, it's like, I actually had the most incredible experience uh, a couple of, of months ago, and I, I wrote about this and made a video for my website where I went to a trapeze flying class in mm. New York City at the top of this like crazy concrete warehouse building overlooking the Hudson River, and my crazy friends were like, it's going to be fun, and we got there. <laughs> And then we, we all got there. None of us had ever done it before. And as soon as we saw the people climbing up this like 90 foot ladder suspended over the, you know, the river, we were like, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> no. And, uh, and the best was that all of the people who ran the trapeze school were like these super cool, like super athletic, you know, acrobatic, cool kids. They were kind of like hipster and they had the cool like haircuts and whatever. And they gave us a training session before we got strapped into the harnesses that I kid you not was like 45 seconds long. (laughs) It was like, all right, so you're going to put your hands out in front of you. You're going to tilt your hips back. Okay, now you're going to tilt your hips forward. And when, you know, so-and-so says jump, then you jump and just do whatever she says. You're going to be great. Okay, you ready? Let's go. Like literally it was like that. (laughs) And I remember thinking like, I am going to die. This is it. Like I am dying. My hands are in the life of this like 17 year old. (laughs) What is going on? And the crazy, crazy, crazy thing was, it was true. Like literally, 
you climb to the top. That's the scariest part, right? Just climbing that freaking ladder to get up to the platform. And as long as you just jump, when the instructor says jump, gravity takes over. And as long as you just do whatever they yell at you, you know, feet <laughs> forward, hands back, flip out, whatever. Like as long as you just do what they say, when they say it, without overthinking it, you turn into this like amazing acrobat just like that. It's wild. Like you really don't need that much preparation. I had no idea. And a friend of mine was was videotaping my very first leap off the platform. And when I watched it later, I started to cry because I looked really graceful and peaceful and happy. Uh, and it was all because I just jumped when the instructor said jump and I didn't question it and I didn't freeze up and I just did what they told me and they were right. It worked. So that was like this epic, oh yeah, <laughs> moment in my mind because you can apply that philosophy to anything, to business, to writing, to relationships. Like just jump, stop thinking. You don't need as much preparation as you think most of the time. Yeah, it so yeah. sounds like you turned off the left side of your brain. Yeah, I, I think I turned off my whole brain. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was really scary. Um, but yeah, but it, it's the preparing for the leap that is always the scariest part. And I know that's so cliche, but it's so true. I'm going to write that down. Preparing for the leap is always the scariest part because that's when you're thinking all the what ifs. It's There's all those scary stories that are coming up in your brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, and I will say it, it does help to have a really cheerful hipster circus performer at the top of the platform smiling at you like it ain't no thing. It's nice to have a cheerleader well, <laughs> you're about to make a big leap. And also the fact that you had people that had experience, right? You weren't just going off and doing this on your own. There was there was leadership that was taking you. And so you could say, okay, they've got this. I just need to let go of my resistance and just do as they say. Absolutely. And there was a safety net be beneath us, you know, and, and this is obviously a very sort of heavy handed metaphor. But mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you have a safety net beneath you, um, it obviously makes it that much easier to just jump. And so what do you do? So have you been able to take that experience? So when you have doubts now and go, remember when I was doing this trapeze experience and I had those doubts that I just stopped thinking? And I yeah, yeah, definitely. I think my, my takeaway from the trapeze moment was twofold. One was you just got to leap like and there's always new moments in your life in which you just got to leap. The other takeaway, though, uh, it was more around not needing to prepare so much. I think that many of us, you know, when we so desperately want to be helpful, we have a tendency to overdo it, to overprepare. You know, we, we put together 40 pages of notes for our 10-minute teleseminar <laughs> or, or we spend, you know, three weeks planning this, this three-hour free workshop that we're doing or whatever. We, you know, we, we spend a day preparing for the session with our client and it's just not necessary most of the time. And I'm not saying, you know, be a slacker or just skim the surface, but the reality is at a certain point, you can trust in your abilities and you can trust, you know, whatever methodologies you've created in your work, in your life to carry you to a certain extent. Um, and that's been a beautiful reminder, particularly this year as I've been teaching workshops all over the country, 
um, <laughs> like the very the very first time I taught a not free workshop, I think I prepared and stressed over it for like you know a week, and it was like a three hour writing workshop where basically I was just calling out you know writing exercises, and people were just doing their own thing anyway. <laughs> It was no big deal. But, um, you know, it's I've learned that once you've built up a bit of a curriculum, a methodology, a way of moving and working in the world, you don't need to over-prepare as much as you think you do. And in fact, that usually stresses you out and leaves very little room for improvisation in the moment. So that was a takeaway that I'm that I'm consistently applying to my life and business today. Well, and doesn't it also just, if you're spending all that time worrying and preparing and worrying and preparing, that zaps just a ton of energy to when you're leading a workshop or if I'm doing an interview, right, then I'm not showing up here because I've been drained with the energy that I've been spending trying to, you know, keep track of how many hours that I've been spending to prepare for this interview, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, again, it's like the, it's like cramming so many bells and whistles into your offering instead of letting it be simple and direct and clean. It's over-preparing is, is about fear, right? It's about scarcity. It's about fear. It's about the, the I'm not good enough feelings. So again, just like striking the balance between I'm amazing and I suck as, uh-huh. as Springsteen encourages us, I think it's about striking the balance between I am well-prepared and ready to be helpful, and I'm not overdoing it. I'm ready to just jump. Ooh, that's just awesome. I like this, Alexandra. You like that full circle action? I like that full circle action. <laughs> comedy, that's called a callback. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You like to listen to a lot of comedy, don't oh you? Oh, my God. I've been on a road trip, and my brain is saturated with comedy podcasts. It's out of control. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any fears? Nah, none. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, of course I do. I, of course I do. Um, I was actually thinking about this this morning. I noticed that a lot of people around me, you know, fellow writers, creatives, authors, artists, are really afraid that somebody's going to steal their ideas, mm-hmm. which I find peculiar. Like I, like I get it, but that's actually never really been a fear of mine. And I actually have had my work like straight up plagiarized. <laughs> and I found it just more kind of odd and funny than like really disturbing. Um, so that's not a key fear of mine. My fear or one of my fears that's sort of a, a perpetual undercurrent in my brain is the opposite. I'm afraid of accidentally plagiarizing someone else like I'm afraid that I'll come up with a brilliant idea for a blog post that I think is like revolutionary and oops it's already been written about in very similar terms by like 14 other people (laughs) (laughs) so I I've learned uh, as sort of like an ethical internet citizen to do a little due diligence and checking and double checking before I, I run rampant with an idea and that doesn't mean that if someone has talked about something similar in the past that then I won't talk about it but it's always a a reminder that I need to bring in a personal story or a personal twist or some sort of wordplay or element that's uniquely mine. Um, There's a great quote by Andre Gade. He says, everything has been said before Mm -hmm. but nobody was listening so we have to go back to the beginning and say it again. And I love that reminder for myself and others that, you know, it's not about reinventing the wheel, 
you know, you, the ideas you're sharing probably have been shared before, but always putting your personal spin, your personal story to make it your own. And then that eliminates, you know, virtually any fear of plagiarization because nobody else has your personal stories in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if they do, that would be very creepy and weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or you found your doppelganger and there's going to be a fight to the death or something like that. <laughs> um, another, other doubts and fears that are kind of like, you know, undercurrents in my life are the, am I, am I famous enough fear? You know, is my, <laughs> I don't know what language we're allowed to use on this show, but, um, I, I wrote a blog post a while back, uh, which was about the fear that my internet male genitalia was not big enough, <laughs> uh, which is a fear that particularly as you, as you move into, you know, the publishing world of releasing a book, it's a very real concern. You know, is anyone going to buy this? Do I have enough of an audience to leverage this and make it work? People are counting on me. My publisher is counting on me. All of those things. So when I have those, am I famous enough fears, um, really what the root of it is, is is this helpful and does anyone care? You know what I mean? So I've learned when those come up to say to myself, just the old, the old cliches, you know, there's always going to be people who are, have more of a platform than me. And there's always going to be people who have less of a platform than me. And ultimately all I can do is keep doing my work, trying to be helpful, trying to leave the world in better condition than I found it. And what will be, will be, will be. Um, so I, I'm really good at talking myself out of fear with sort of like sing-songy woo-woo mantras. It's a it's a peculiar talent, of mine. <laughs> but um, but it really works. It really works. Reframing is powerful. Reframing is powerful, and it's so important to do. And I love that how you have them, but you don't hang out and pitch a tent and build a campfire and invite all your friends to you know sit around and fondle that fear, right? You have that fear. No, no fear fondling yes. soirees. No fear fondling. So you have the fear, you see what it is, right? You uncover it and then you reframe to what is actually true. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there it's I think the the ultimate reframe is it's it's not even a reframe, it's more of just a reminder. Like, okay, that fear is there. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. In reality, all I can do is continue to do the work that I believe to be good in the hopes that it is helpful and in the hopes that it leaves the world in better shape than I found it. Like that's all you can ultimately say to yourself. And if you focus on that, the other, the fearful voices tend to subside, at least in my experience. Awesome. So do you, Alexandra, do you have a couple takeaways? You've given us a lot of takeaways, but two takeaways to wrap up this interview. And it can be something that was said earlier. Mm, I would say whatever kind of business you're running, whether you're selling products, whether you're selling services, whether you're selling, you know, intellectual property, ideas, language, I bet you can simplify whatever you're doing. <laughs> like, I bet there's a way that you can bring more simplicity into it whether that means fewer bells and whistles on your offerings, simple, clear, direct language in the way that you talk about yourself, or maybe just a reshaping of the way that you offer yourself to the world where you're setting the terms and it's simple and it's clear and it's concrete and black and white. So simplicity. I just want to like sprinkle simple dust over everyone. (laughs) Shimmer, shimmer. And the other takeaway 
is as you're grooving with simplicity, more personality. That's the other side of the coin, right? So if you bring your personal stories into everything that you do, into your business offerings, into your writing, into your podcasts, you will never be a plagiarist. You will never be a copycat. You will never be able to be copied because it will always be yours. And that is really the only way to be original. You know, there one might argue that there are not really any truly original ideas, but there are always original and individual stories and perspectives on those classic ideas. So simplicity, personality, and as a third takeaway, consistency. Boom. And would you say those three things is what really helps a business be successful? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Alexandra, it has been a blast talking with you. Thank you for being a guest today. Oh my gosh, such a pleasure. I'm going to remember fear fondling forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! There's something for the wordsmith. Yes, my favorite. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com and thanks for listening today. On She is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.